Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Mini Sports. Anything and everything for the classic Mini since 1967. My guest this week is Neil Levisage. He's been an active motorcyclist all his life. He's not into racing. He'll say that a few times uh, during the course of the next hour or so. All I'd say is, if you like a rant, and who doesn't like a rant, then stick around. Because he's, he's a blunt-speaking Yorkshireman, is Neil. A man of strong opinions, and we like that round here. My guest this week, Neil Levisage. Now, Neil, when we spoke earlier, I asked you about in the six years of Steve Speed Shop, what do you think is the most mentioned powered vehicle? Well, I'm guessing it's either a BSA Bantam or a Honda C50, the step through. Right, well, come on. If I came to you for independent financial advice, <laughs> um, I'd expect a definitive answer. So go on, go for it. Definitive well, answer. If you came to me for independent financial advice, the first thing I would do is find out a fa- is use a fact find ah. so that I would know how best I can help you. So what I would be asking you if you're asking me about a bike is, what do you want to use it for? But I'll go with Honda C50. Is the right answer. The venerable Honda... <laughs> Honda Cub, as it's the, it's incredible. I've I've had people on here who've got collections of exotic bikes, exotic cars. I mean, when I say ex- exotic cars, I mean the most exotic cars on the planet: Ferrari two fifties, McLaren F ones. If you want to see the most exotic cars on the planet, go to the Schlumpf collection in Mulhouse in I've, France, just near the Swiss border. I've been. It is absolutely out of this world. I've been. Um, Mulhouse or Mulhouse? Mulhouse or Mulhouse, if if you want to be... If you want to be very Lancashire about it. Well, well, I will be, if you don't mind. But, um, (laughs) Liversidge is a Liverpoolian name, isn't it? That's part of the world, yeah? Liversidge, the town, is about ten miles from here. And uh, next to it, you've got Robertstown. It's named after our ancestor... It was a Norman knight called Robert de Liversidge who moved in in 1200 and something. Well, Bury, where I'm from, just means fort. So Is it's that right? like, yeah, and so every uh, every every town that it's added onto just had a fort. But in this part of the world, it's funny, when I started, um, we've got right off the subject of the Honda Cub. We'll come back to it in a second. But when I started to mix with with solidly middle class university educated people back in the days, Neil, when hardly anybody went to university. Do you remember? Do you remember well, that? I, I grew up in those days. I didn't go to university. I got out of school at 16, tried college for three months doing <laughs> politics, economics and history, and then dropped out and got a job at 16. Well, where where I... I was the first one in our family to go to university, and it was, you know, it was quite a rare thing. But then, of course, when I uh, first mentioned the BBC, when I started at the BBC... God, we've not even got five minutes in, and I'm already going on about the BBC... I met all these people, and when I when I asked them where they were from, they were from names that had that places that had really long names. Little Witten on the all those places in the southeast. Little Witten on the Wold, Princess Risborough, yeah, uh, Bishop <laughs> Stortford. They always had two or three names. These places. They go, "Where are you from, Steve?" And I go, 
Bury. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought, where I live, places have got really short names. Bury, Wigan, Bolton. There's Leeds. no... Yeah, because I think, and I think that reflects the character of the place, business-like, straight down to it. No, like, oh, what about Little Berry on... No, 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 Burry, B-U-R-Y, that'll do. Um, I once, I think vandalised, but are you allowed to say graffiti and then it's okay? Is graffiti okay, but vandalism's not? Graffiti is okay if it's well done. Graffiti and it's in an appropriate place. Let me tell you something. Graffiti is something that makes people's blood boil if it's on their property, unless it's Banksy, in which case that's absolutely fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and get straight, <laughs> get straight on the phone to Bonhams because you're in the money. Yeah, well, a, a friend of mine was not very pleased to read some graffiti because it involved his daughter's exploits. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Neil. I'll leave was... the rest to your imagination. Good Lord. Well, you, you, you shouldn't do that, because uh, I was going to say, I haven't seen my missus since January 2020, so please don't leave that to my imagination. Well, well, I'm, I'm guessing that it, it was one of her boyfriends that wrote it, unless she wrote it herself and thought it paid to advertise. Well, we are going to get back to the Honda Cub in just a second, the venerable Honda Cub, the most, I think, the most manufactured internal combustion engine vehicle in the history of internal combustion. But the longest-lasting graffiti that I can remember was on the train line between Bury and Manchester, home of the first railway station, of course, Manchester, in this, the first industrial city. Um, and it said, pay the fireman on this. Do you remember when they used to put up walls? Well, that, w- that would be from the fireman strike in 1978. Yeah, when I was a, an army cadet... Uh, the uh, Castle Armoury, obviously the Castle Armoury, we've just said the town was a fort, originally a Roman fort, and so there's always been, you know, it's the home of the Lancashire Fusiliers and all that sort of stuff. So as a young yep. army cadet, I remember when the uh, the army were pressed into service to drive the venerable green... The green goddesses. The green, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, They would they would turn over quicker than, than a reliant robin in a corner, wouldn't they? They were, oh, yeah. <laughs> they were, it's amazing, actually. I think probably more people died in Green Goddess crashes than died in actual fires that they were attending. But uh, talking about aged graffiti, I always remember somebody had written on a... There's a famous bridge near us in Castleford. You can Google this. And it's called Tickle Cock Bridge. And I'm sure you can work out why <laughs> half the population of Castleford... Half the, pop, the population of Castleford is descended from somebody conceived in Tickle Cock Bridge. And somebody wrote on there, and it must have been Christmas 1973, Slade says, Merry Christmas, everybody. And that was there right until Ticklecock Bridge was demolished and remodelled probably about ten years ago. Well, I I had to explain to people that the wall that it was on, um, and it was on the, uh, is it the Berry Rochdale Canal? Fred Dibner did a whole programme about it. I feel ashamed now. When it, oh, well, Fred, Fred Dimner was fantastic. Oh, yeah, one of his... One I, of his I still watch his stuff on YouTube. Sad as I am, I will frequently re-watch stuff that he did about sort of Britain's industrial heritage and, and his own his own adventures. It's funny, if, if you watched Fred... Cool, we haven't half got off the subject, but never mind, it's interesting. Um, if you watch Fred's programme, he mellowed considerably. When he was yeah. when he was Fred the Steeplejack, and it was... I think he was called David Hall, the chap who made the programmes, and... When he was just being observed, when he wasn't presenting, he was being observed as a steeplejack going about his business. He didn't know if expressed some politically incorrect views. Yeah, well, we've, <laughs> we've got his equivalent here in Castleford, and it's a lad called Nigel who fits uh, solid fuel stoves. 
and um, he came out to our house to fit our stove, and, and I, I had to get him back to fit my daughter's stove just so that he could wind up my daughter as much as he wound up my wife. I mean, this guy takes mansplaining to whole new heights. Wow. <laughs> well, Fred didn't have a Honda Cub, but what he did have, and I knew he had because I used to see him on it, um, was an AJS. Fred... I was going to say, I remember Fred having an old Brit bike, but I couldn't remember what it was. Um, Fred neglected to um, take any heed of the rules and regulations. <laughs> Not that I did in my early days. That's another That's another running theme on Speed Shop. Um, respectable people, like your good self, um, confessing to sort of teenage indiscretions when it came to motorbikes and scooters, <laughs> just saying, you know, admitting, well, admitting that they took to the road when they were roughly 14 or 15. Well, well, my C50, I, I got that. I swapped, uh, I swapped a push bike for it when I was 15. And I used it on a disused railway line near us, and it was great because I could guarantee that I'd be out like 20 minutes and one of the locals would phone the cops. So there was always uh, a chase that involved usually Mr Plod on foot or some guy foolishly trying to drive a car up this disused railway line. But of course, I, mean, I knew everywhere to get away, so I never got caught. Well, so that, was um, like, that was 1978, and I think the, the statute of limitations has probably expired on it now. So if you're listening, Mr Plod, tough luck. <laughs> what was the... Um... What was the... Oh, what was I going to ask you then? I got I got thrown. I'll tell you why I got thrown. Because I knew a chap from your part of the world who was quite Dibner-esque in his own way. And he told me a story uh, about a place not so far from you in Yorkshire that's called California. It's California actually, in Yorkshire? I've never actually, heard of that. Right, well, I think it's near Shipley. Because he told me that when he was in his teenage operating vehicles on the road without a license insurance or any sort of any sort of any sort of legal niceties that the, the the government and the police may have required you to have the landlord of the pub there which was called something called something like you know the crown and anchor or the sort of you know the gray mare or something like that yep had a bright idea he was in he was in california the place little tiny little place he changed the name to something like Ed's Bar and Grill or something like that and sort of had an American theme. Right. And so for a while it was fashionable. And he said, but it was on a coaching road uh, on the moors. So you had to get there. You couldn't walk there and, you know, the buses would have gone once a week. So they went up. he went up there in his BMW Isetta. Do you remember those? That's, that's going back a long time now, BMW Isettas, yeah. Well, it wasn't new. Like a lot of us, he'd sort of swapped it for a push bike or, you know, something like a wheelbarrow or something like yep. that. He's, you know, um, and he would go up there on his own and he said, but I'd always be popular because, he said, I didn't drink and I'd give people a lift home. Now, back then, and the last thing I'm going to do is condone this, most people did drink and drive. That's why they had to bring in a law about it. Yeah, this, this is a fact. I mean... I think Barbara Castle brought in the breathalyzer about 1968 or 69. Blimey. And, I was on... and made herself very unpopular for it, but it needed to be done because, as you say, everybody did it those days. I know my dad did it in the 60s. Well, if I, if I, could, I could tell you a story about my dad. <laughs> well, here's the thing. What they'll say, Neil, is people. some people will say, oh, yeah, then were the days when you could go out and get tanked up and drive home. Yeah, and then were the days when... Thousands, tens of thousands of people died because of that. And, and That's I, right. Road accident statistics were absolutely horrendous. They and were. Booze had, booze had a, a large part in that. 
And also, of course, there were factors like brakes weren't as good, road design wasn't as good, people didn't think things through like they do today, road furniture was usually put in some place where it would do you the maximum amount of damage if you got your corner in wrong. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the breathalyzer law was absolutely necessary, and Barbara Castle took a lot of flack for it, but I'm sure that she saved thousands of lives. I was in Blackburn, Lancashire, just the other day, and I was on Barbara Castle Way, and then I was on another road named... This is going to be relevant, so giving you a massive clue there. Then I was on another road named after a famous son, a resident of Blackburn, and was quite surprised to find myself there. Can you, can you guess who that was, what that... It was something, something where. Oh, not Jack Straw. Jack he got Straw. Barbara Castle's seat when she retired. <laughs> Carl Fogarty way. Oh, Carl Fogarty. Yeah, our own four-time uh, world superbike champion. I didn't realise Foggy was from Black Blackburn. Oh, very much so. Oh, I yeah. And and one of those people who, when he made his money, and boy, did he make some money because when he was in World Superbike. There was a lot of money to be had because it was it was super popular, wasn't it, here in the UK? I mean, I went to Assen a few times, um, made the pilgrimage in Holland, obviously, and um, thousands of Brits, thousands would go over. The, the crowd at other superbike uh, meetings in other parts of the world wasn't that marvellous, but Britain and Holland always had a huge crowd because Foggy, he kind of, I was going to say he did a Barry Sheen, but... I think Sterling Moss might have been the first person who kind of surpassed his fame in motor racing and translated it into mainstream celebrity. You know, like somebody like Harvey Smith, the show jumper. He yeah. he, he became a national treasure, didn't he? In the, in the same way that Foggy did, which is why when he was on I'm a Celebrity and people said, I knew Carl pretty well back in the day. We, You know, we see each other occasionally. We're still friendly, but, you know, we're not. You've got other things going on in your life. But when people said, hey, Carl's going to be on um, I'm a Celebrity, I said, he'll win. Because he's just a likeable guy when you get to know him. I think some people were like, back in the day, they'd say, people have said to me, he's arrogant. I say, yeah, he is a bit arrogant, but he deserves, <laughs> he's deservingly well, the, the arrogant. Being arrogant is okay if you've got the achievements to carry it off. Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton is an odd, eccentric, slightly arrogant guy, and I celebrate that. Some people seem to struggle with it. I think we all know why. It's the great unsayable. But... Well, now let's say it. A lot of people have got this problem because Lewis Hamilton is of mixed race. Yep. It's like a lot of people um, find every reason to, to bitch and complain about Meghan Markle and it's code for we don't like her because she's black. Yeah, but just, it, just the same as it was with Obama. They came up with, they called him everything under the sun, apart from the one word they wanted to say, but dare not say, the N-word. And I thought Obama was a fantastic president. He was a class act. He, he was the best president America has had in well, my lifetime. Well, and, you know, you compare him with Trump. Oh, I mean, yeah. Christ, you know, Trump makes Dick Nixon look like Lincoln. <laughs> Sometimes I'd, I'd read the news, like, even a couple of years into his presidency and still refuse to believe that he was actually the president of America. Because I remember him being in stuff like Home Alone and stuff like, stuff like that. I'm thinking, <laughs> that guy's the president? Really? No, but the thing... Right, so here's the thing. The same people who will have a go at Lewis, and I'm a massive fan, I have to say, in the same way that I'm a Valentino Rossi, again, an eccentric character... 
a bit bit of an oddball, but a genius. So he's an oddball. Great, no problem. The thing with Lewis, they'll go on him, and one one of the things they'll have a go at him for is his dress sense. But they're the same people who'll say, "Oh yeah, Barry Sheen and James on Barry Sheen and James on." Look at what they wore. Well, well, I would not criticise anybody for the dress. No, but here's the anybody, thing. Anybody who's ever met me knows that I am completely sartorially incompetent. Go back and look <laughs> at pictures of Barry Sheen and James Hunt. Penny round collars, tank tops, massive flapping Lionel Blairs. Well, well of course, tri- they, they were big denim. in the decade that uh, taste, taste and forgot. fashion forgot, <laughs> the 70s. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I, I dodged a bullet because it, my mum and dad got married in... Well, let's not go into that because... When I was 10, I worked out why they had to get married. But anyway, in the mid-60s, <laughs> yeah, I was 10, it was my 10th birthday, and I thought, hold on a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, mine got married in 1945, would you believe? I think my <laughs> dad may have felt the, the cold steel of my grandfather's Webley and Scott service pistol in, this, <laughs> in, in the small of his back as he marched up the aisle. But anyway, it's a happy marriage. They're still together and wonderful people. Um, but then again, I would say that to my mum and dad. But... Um, they look amazing in their wedding photos because they got married in the mid-60s. So my dad looks like he's in a Quentin Tarantino movie. He looks really super sharp. I got married um, in, the early, in the early 90s when there was a bit of a sort of 60s revival going on. I've got a nice Paul Smith suit. Uh, there's there's nothing extreme. You, you didn't have one of those silver suits that were around at the time. No, you? no, no. Nice. Everybody uh, seemed to be wearing silver suits when they got married. You know, they looked a, like kind of a nice worsted Star, Star yeah. Trek extras. But if you got married in the seventies, you've got to hide the pictures, haven't you? <laughs> oh yeah, like flares, <laughs> orange burns, orange suits, <laughs> purple suits. You're thinking big bow ties, big velvet bow ties, and stuff like that. Yep. But getting back to it and making a serious point. I struggle with people not celebrating the most successful Grand Prix driver of all time, and he's British. I'm proud, yep. to, you know, I'm proud to be. And then they'll go, "Oh yeah, he dodges tax living in in Mon- Monaco." All the racing drivers went. Wait, where do you think Jackie Stewart, who for me is a saint who walks the earth? I mean, Jackie Stewart revolutionised motorsport. As- We've had plenty of politicians who've dodged taxes. In Monte Carlo, all one of them being to... uh, Ernest Marples, who was the transport secretary, yeah. who basically put in train the destruction of the railways to benefit his own motorway firm, and then basically legged it to Monte Carlo to avoid prosecution for all the fraudulent shenanigans he was involved in when he was a government minister yeah, but... in, the, in the late fifties and early sixties. So, yeah, I can understand why somebody like Foggy legs it to Monte Carlo. No, Foggy didn't. I w- personally, no, no. I wouldn't. You know, I love my country and I pay my taxes here. No, uh, the point I was going to make was Carl is one of those rare people who, who got rich and famous and didn't even go to London. He stayed in his hometown. You well, know, he, stay, he stayed in Blackburn. He, Carl Fogarty is a guy that I've never met because, I, personally, I'm not into racing and I never have been, right. but I know of him, obviously. Um, and I, I, I remember friends of mine raving about him, and, and personally, I've never heard a bad word said about the guy, but I, I, used, to, I used to read the stuff <laughs> in you know motorcycle nonsense that um, was never good and, and the general press, but uh, I, I never heard a, a bad word said about him from other motorcyclists. But let's get back to... Unless you were beating somebody that they were uh, that they were enamoured with. Yeah, well, I think if you spoke to Scott Russell or John Kaczynski, what, what Carl used to do, which is what a lot of the really great riders and drivers in the history of motor racing have done traditionally, is create a sort of scenario where they felt, deliberately, where they felt that they were in conflict with one of their talented rivals 
and you can see that they kind of, not kind of, they engineered that scenario. So well, when this, they were, this went on, of course, with yeah. James Hunt and Nicky Lauder, just the same. And it's, this is applied in every sport. I mean, it used to apply in professional wrestling, where you had Big Daddy versus Giant Haystacks, because it plays well with the public. Wasn't he from your part of the world, Shirley? He was called Shirley, wasn't he, Big Daddy? It, it, Big Daddy was Shirley Crabtree <laughs> from Halifax, yeah. Would you dare to say it to his face, though? I'm sure a lot of people did. <laughs> well, the thing was... He always struck me, you know, his dad must have listened to Johnny Cash singing A Boy Named Sue um, and called his lad Shirley. <laughs> well, it's funny when you meet posh people. We're getting back to posh people again, and they're called, like, Jocelyn or Francis, and you're like... Isn't that a girl? Now, the, now, they're all called Rupert. <laughs> I do refer to them collectively as the Rupert. Do you know what? I've got two friends called Rupert, three friends called Rupert, and only one's posh. Yeah. The other two, one's a coach driver and the other one's a motorcycle mechanic. <laughs> but the other, the other one is straight from central casting with, like, red trousers and sort of tweed breeches and, like, you know... Yeah, but in, in the business I'm in, I meet a lot of Ruperts. <laughs> Even have one or two of them as clients. <laughs> But here's the thing, if all we're getting back to it, we're getting. I don't know if we've ever gone on the diversion like we've just gone on the entire history of the show, and that's saying something. But I'll drag it back to Ernest Marples and say to you, Dale, if he hadn't closed the railways down, you wouldn't have had anywhere to ride that C50. No, that's not true because we had a road network that existed before the railways came along, and, and the road work network developed. Um, all Marples did was get rid of the railways, build a load of motors, motorways. We did need the motorways, but we should never have got rid of the motorway, of the railway lines. They should never have been ripped up. If, if anything, some of them should have been mothballed, certainly. Um, but we should have kept all the routes. We shouldn't have sold the land off. And we're going to need to put all those railways back now. And that's actually a central plank of my platform with the organisation which I've started, the campaign I've started, which is Choice in Personal and Public Transport. And what we're arguing for is that the rail network should be fully reinstated, that the massive public investment that's going to go into silly things like installing loads of charging points for hairdryer-type electric cars should instead be put into a proper, fully electrified public transport in infrastructure consisting of trains, trams and trolleybuses. If you do that, you can get commuting down massively. If you get commuting down massively, you get pollution down massively. You can improve living standards because people will be able to get to and from work a lot faster than they are now mm. in a much safer and more comfortable environment. And people will be able to keep cars and keep motorcycles like they've got at present and not suffer forced electrification on the atomised model that's currently being proposed, which is utterly insane, yeah. of electric cars and electric bikes. Well, um, the vehicle we were talking about, the venerable Honda Cub, I'll, bring us, I'll drag us back to that, kicking and screaming if I must, Neil, um, that surely has been one of the most sustainable, responsible, practical means of moving one, two, or if you're in Vietnam, seven people from A to B. Yep, absolutely it has. And I think they've actually recreated it. I'm not sure whether it's a 50 or a 70 or a 90, but I know that in Castle Motorcycles, near us in Castleford, they've got them on display again, you know, the step through that's being brought back. I don't know where they're building them these days. It's probably Brazil or somewhere like that. But they are still a very practical option for somebody who wants to ride to work. My dad had a few. 
and um, I hated them <laughs> because he'd had a couple of cool bikes, and then then he then he had a succession of what used because of course they have, they go by various names, but in our part of the world they used to call them plaques. Was that ever? Plaggies. Yeah, plaggies. That's plaggies. right. Plaggies, because they've got yeah. plastic leg, leg shields. I did very well out of them, because when I got into bikes when I was 17, and um, you know, when, I, when I got into bikes properly, I, mean, I had the, the C50 when I was, I think it was 12 or 13. <laughs> um, that's, 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 we've, we've, you, you've not beaten the record. We had a guy who drove a car on the road when he was five. Oh, no, but, I, I, I didn't get that young, but I, I, I bought a Billy Bantam um, off a guy down the street for 10 shillings in old money, so that must have been about 1970 when I was seven. Wow. And, I, and I got that running, and then later on, um, in fact, no, I was 15 before I got the C50 because I, sw- I swapped a push bike for it, I remember. But um, then when I started getting bikes on the road and, and the locals started seeing me blacking about on, first of all, a Honda H100 and then Suzuki GS250T, Honda FT500, um, what I found was then the local blokes who'd all got things like C50s and C90s would start saying, can you do me a service, Neil? So I had a nice little trade going, yeah. um, servicing bikes in the street uh, as a little top-up uh, for for the uh, the wage I was earning in my normal job. Mate, we've talked about this numerous times on the show. Back, back in the day, a lot of men in our part of the world, and it was men, in, in the industrial north, let's say... They went know, to the pit on a bike. And, like my dad, who worked in a mill, they would have a, they'd have a, what they call a side gig these days, wouldn't they? They'd, so my dad would do engine swaps in the street. And, oh, yeah. And, and I, I mean, s- my, my, my dad was a coal miner, um, but he, he cleaned windows for the entire village, and, and being the kind of guy that he was... He did all the pensioners' windows for free, <laughs> you know. Well, was, and I was and, so... and there, were, there were people who said, oh, you know, Raymond's daft, he, he works for no, but I don't, view, I don't view it as being daft. You know, I think generosity is a good thing, and when you've got pensioners that aren't earning or don't have much of an income, if somebody goes around and cleans the windows for free, then I applaud that. Well, oh, for free, I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure if my dad was that way inclined, but... What what we were talking about it, and I, I was saying, well, somebody said to me, well, how would they get these cars round to your house if the if the engine had gone? And I said they'd push them. Yeah. And I said, what what do you mean they push them? I said they push them and they get neighbours and friends to help them push them. And you, you and- know what really annoys me, Steve? People who break down and they will sit in a car and cause a massive tailback when they could just get out and shove it to the side of the road, bump it up the pavement, get it out of the way. And you know what? If somebody if somebody got out of the car and started shoving it to get it out of the way, I guarantee the two or three cars behind would stop, the people would get out, and they would give them a hand shoving it out of the way. And instead, they'd just sit there like lemons, blocking the road for everybody and creating a dangerous obstruction just out of sheer ignorance and stupidity. <laughs> People are undoubtedly less practical than they used. People used to be practical, didn't they? Yeah, they, yeah, they did. And, and people have lost that. People want everything done for them these days. And it's a bad thing. It leads to a lot of waste. I mean, I hate wasting stuff. You know, the, most things that break can be fixed if you just put your mind to it. And, and, and we chuck far too much stuff away. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, prime culprits amongst these are all the sort of middle-class Idlington <laughs> tofu munchers 
that, w- that would love us all to be in electric air dryer cars. Hey, I used to live in Islington, and because uh, my partner... You don't, you don't come across as a tofu muncher, though, let's well, be right, Steve. I've eaten a bit of tofu in my time because my missus <laughs> has been a vegetarian. I'm not going to say yeah. how long for, because that might g- give away her age, and the last thing I need is, is, uh, is to do that. But... Um, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you. When's the last time you pushed a bike? Because for me, oh God, don't, don't remind me. Right, um, well, go on then. I, I had a GS eight fifty on the road before my Harley, and uh, the electrics went. And Sod's law says they went just over the hill from our old house in a little village called Swillington. Uh, and if, if you go on Google Earth and look at the road from Swillington to Allerton Bywater, what you can see is there's a bloody great hill that goes up over what used to be an open cast coal mine site. And I had to push it all the way up the hill, and I think, uh, well, it's the one reason why I know I do not have a heart problem, because if ever I was going <laughs> to die of a heart attack, it was going to be that day, pushing a GS850 over a bloody great hill. How long ago <laughs> was that, though? Ooh, 25 years ago. Right. Well, I'll, I'll see you 25 years ago and raise you last Wednesday. So yeah. I, I'll explain the scenario. My lad has got uh, a rev and go, um, let's say 50cc. Yeah, let's say that. Um, it's not. And um, it was MLT time. So he happened to round at my place. He lives a few miles away. And he'd been having some trouble with it. And I said, right, well, listen, I'll take it to, and this is one of those great places that must never die, Manchester's oldest motorbike shop, B&C Motorcycles, on the Oldham Road, near the big Royal Mail sorting office. Been there since 1947. Wow. A fantastic set of lads. You can turn up on anything and it won't phase them. You will get the what's it ruthlessly extracted from you while you're there, if, especially, yep. especially if you're me. So I turn up on this Rev and Go and hilarity ensues because it's like, <laughs> what's this? And I said, it's not mine. Oh, yeah, of course it isn't. It's not <laughs> mine. It's my son's, right? So the MOT it. And I set off back to my place, which is about three miles away. I get two I get two miles away, and it conks out in the centre of Manchester on the hottest day of the year, and I cannot get the damn thing to fire up. So I think, right, well, if I leave it round here, it'll it'll probably you could measure it in minutes. Yeah. I cut it minutes before it goes missing. Yeah. So I thought, I've got to push it back to the shop. I push it back to the shop, and guess what we find? The effects. This has got to be something simple and stupid. Well, the no, yeah, something stupid. You're right, Neil, but not something simple. The effect, the effects of bloody ethanol in fuel. Oh right. The rubber, the rubber pipe. This, the lads got the rubber pipe off the fuel line, and split it with a Stanley knife, and you could scrape the rubber from the inside of the pipe with your right. fingernail and then rub it between your fingers. And it was like blue tack. And I said, what the hell's going on here? And they went, ethanol. Ethanol, mate. So they replaced, they, they got it all out, because, of course, it's then all in the carburetor. It's, yep, you know, yep, they, yep. they took the carburetor off. It's still got a carburetor. Took the carburetor off, stripped it, got as much of it out as we could. We got the thing running. I said, right, OK, thanks, lads. Off, off I set again. This time, I got two and a half miles. <laughs> <laughs> and it did exactly the same thing. And I was in an even worse part of Manchester, if you can believe that. And I thought, I definitely, definitely can't leave it here. I've yeah, got... well, it's like, it sounds like when uh, my GS850 broke down on Holton Moor in Leeds, which is a fairly tough estate. 
and and this was uh, well, getting on for 30 years ago when I worked at a furniture firm on uh, Cross Green Industrial Estate in Leeds, and it broke down on the coldest night of the year. It was about minus 15, uh, and I had to wait four hours for the AA to come out and recover it. And I couldn't leave it because if I'd left it, it would have been yeah. well, it would have just vanished. You know? That's it. Um, but uh, I waited four hours for the AA. They sent a trailer that were too small for it. If so people, that, that was the end of my AA membership. <laughs> if people in those nice places, and but trust me, I'm not having to go at Chichester or Chipping Camden or all those lovely chocolate box places that people come to Britain and they go to London and they go and see Les Mis or, well, do they? Yeah, they do now. Uh, or the Phantom of the Opera, and then on the way up to Edinburgh, they call in the Cotswolds, and they go, oh, I've been to Britain. And you go, no, no, you haven't been to Britain because you've not been to Burnley, right? If you've been to, once you've been, it's like if people who go to the States and they'll say, oh, yeah, the States, the States. I say, where have you been? Oh, well, we've been to New York a couple of times, and we've been to Florida, and we've been to L.A. And I go, have you yeah, been? You see, you see we, we, we've toured properly because we, yeah. we go there and we rent a car and we go out to places where there are no Brits. Yeah. So, so you know, I I've, been to in, I've been in hillbilly country yeah. in Tennessee and places like that, yeah. Gatlinburg. I said, to um, him, I said to him, have you been to Jackson, Ohio? And they go, no. I said, well, I have. So yep. I, I've, been, <laughs> I've been to a place where every single home has a giant American flag flying from a, from a, from a flagpole in the front garden. 90% of people drive pickup trucks, and they've not only have they never been to New York, L.A. or Florida like you have, they've never left Ohio. <laughs> yeah, that's what, you, what we find in America is that a lot of people have never been out of the home state, and a, a lot of people have probably never been out of the, their own county you also in find, the United States. You also find out, Neil, don't you, why they ride Harleys? Because when you get there, Harleys make perfect sense. Oh, Harley, uh, Harleys make perfect sense everywhere, of course, <laughs> I would say, but... Not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from the racetrack, obviously. Um, but... Uh, I mean, I've been riding a Harley, what, 12 years now, and you know, people slag off Harleys. And, uh, and carry on, if you want to do that, fine, not a problem. All I can say is I've never regretted buying mine. It's horses, Simple as. It's horses for courses, if you'll pardon the... Uh, pardon the uh, yeah, I mean, I've got exactly my Harley. I've got a, 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 a Triumph Special. It's a 1950 Thunderbird engine in a 59 frame. It's Ooh. got late-model late Bonneville forks and, and what have you. It's a single-seater. It's... I put it together. The idea were in my head, and a mate of mine who was good at building bikes put it together for me. Um, and, and I'm hoping to get my Bonneville chopper on the road this year or next year. Um, but my GS850 has got to go back on the road as well. I'm, I'm oh, not into race bikes for a very practical reason. Number one, I'm six foot two, and um, I just find them too cramped for me. And, and number two, in terms of staying alive, all my mates have had plastic bullets at some point or another. They have all done themselves serious damage because you just don't look far enough down the road. They're, they're looking at the tarmac that is immediately in front of the bike, whereas on the Harley, I'm looking at the tarmac that's 300 yards down the road. So, you know, my wife would have, have a fit if I had a plastic bullet, and I'm pretty sure my staff and my clients would as well. So a Harley works for me all the way around. Likewise, my Triumphs. Likewise, the GS850. Well, if you if you go to the popular biking haunts of a weekend in this part of the world. So, Rivington Barn, Devil's Bridge, you go down to Barla, you know... Squires Coffee Bar, Sherman Helmet. Yeah, so Squires. New, on, for new folk these days at Squires, yeah. A legendary uh, location for bikers well, to gather. Well, that's my second home. You know, I, I used to be there, like, every Wednesday night, every Sunday... 
for years when he was at the old place. Uh, New Thorpe's OK, but I, I did prefer the original in Sherburn. Well, I'll be at the Ace this weekend in North, uh, in North London for the reunion, and uh, what I was going to say was, if you went back 25 years, there'd be a lot of race replica bikes in the car park at any sort of gathering like that. Oh, yeah. No. Same at Squires. Yeah, but it's not like that, is it? Now you go, and it's kind of... There's a lot of retro stuff, Triumph, Thruxton, Bobber, Harleys, yep. Ducati Scrambler. Um, no, I was going to say Norton, then. <laughs> well, well, a lot of it is down to the fact that the motorcycling population has aged. And, you know, the older you get and the stiffer you get, um, bikes like Harleys are a lot more comfortable than plastic bullets with your knees under your chin. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the motorcycle population is ageing rapidly, as you say. Well, not rapidly. It's Time doesn't speed up, Steve. <laughs> so um, you don't need to know your, your Einstein to realise that. It moves at a, a regular pace. But um, what what is the reason for that? What do you think? I think there are numerous reasons. Why do you think that... that... Well, there are numerous reasons. One of the main reasons is that it's vastly more complex now to get a licence to ride a motorcycle than it was when I started riding on the road um, in 1980, 1981. Uh, and a lot of that is down to European legislation, uh, the driving licence directives, which came in one after the other. Um, we lobbied on it. All the British politicians said, there's nothing that we can do, it's all coming from Europe, which was true. Now we've had Brexit, thank God. Maybe some of that can be rolled back, but I doubt it, because po- politicians are cowardly, and it's always the safe option to... Uh, put in regulations that keep little Johnny off bikes so that his mother's not having a fit and writing to her MP. So licensing is a lot of it. Also, a lot of it is pure economics. When I got my first bike on the road, it was a Honda H100. It was March 1981. It cost me £406 to buy the bike. It cost me £89 to insure it fully comp. And it cost me, I think it was £6 for a tax disc. Now, at that time, I was earning a bit short of three grand a year. So you can say it cost me about a sixth, roughly, of my gross annual salary. Now, what happened, of course, in the 80s was Thatcher destroyed the living standards of young people by bringing in cheap labour schemes like the Youth Opportunities Programme and the Youth Training Scheme. So living standards and incomes were forced down in real terms for motorcycling's natural market, which was young people. So on the one hand, they had a lot less money to spend. Insurance costs went through the roof. Interest rates went through the roof as well, which made getting loans a a lot more expensive than it had been previously. And economically, we just lost entire generations of would-be motorcyclists. And a lot of it was down to Thatcher and Conservative government policy in the 1980s. And I don't think it's ever really recovered from that. On the back of that, of course, we've had hostile politicians who purely and simply just wanted motorcyclists off the road by whatever means possible. If you go back to the middle 80s, the Department of Transport issued a statement which said once the climate is favourable, we shall look to withdraw the option completely. The option they were talking about was the option to ride a motorcycle. And that's what, you know, much of what's going on today with um, automatic vehicles and everything, part of the agenda there is to get rid of people who are in control of their own vehicle. They want rid of bikes completely, and they want car drivers vastly more under control. We are moving into what I call the post-freedom society, unless we do something about it. 
I think you're bang on, and I think there are very few people that are willing to say it out loud like you did. I think they'd much rather that we were moved around in the way that they want us to move around. And I think one of the problems... Yeah, that, 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 that is what they want to do to us. Yeah. That's what the politicians want. And they're talking about phasing out internal combustion engine vehicles. Well, you know what? There are 32 million licence holders in this country. No political party has ever polled even 14 million votes in a general election. I think the, the top has been sort of 13 and a quarter, 13 and a half million. So we as a bloc need to start exercising our political power, you know, and if it's a blunt instrument, so be it. But we need to phase out the politicians that are the enemies of motorcycling because they are the, en they are the real enemies of the people. They're trying to stop people living the lives the way they want to live them. And the, the people of this country have been put upon in so many ways for so many years, you are now starting to see a reaction against it. And Brexit was part of that. You know, nobody in this country envisaged that the European Union we ended up in was what they were voting for um, when, they, when Harold Wilson gave them the referendum in 75, or when Ted Heath lied through his teeth to get us into the old European economic community in the first place in 1973. And the British people have been shafted the whole way down the road, and now you know, there are 32 million of us who hold licences. If necessary, we should wreak political havoc in this country. And it can be as simple as voting against every incumbent. So when you, the next general election comes round, what we might be asking people to do is whoever your current MP is, vote against him. Vote for the person who's most likely to beat him. And then at the next election after that, do the same again. And let's limit political careers to three, four or five years just by voting them out of office until we make the country ungovernable by people who are not governing it right and who'll start instead doing what the vast majority of the people in this country want done. Wow. <laughs> I thought I could have a rant. <laughs> I think you're right, though, because um, there's be it's, it, it's what governments do, isn't it? They don't ban things. They don't outright ban things. What they do is they make it so difficult for people to access something. Think how difficult. Right, so you're... I'm right Governments this... wear people down. Yeah. The governments of this country, and most of the democratic countries as well, but particularly this country, have become like the nagging wife that no sane man would ever marry. So, my... Let's go back to the scooter that I had to push last Wednesday, and we'll never forget pushing it twice in one day, as I said to my <laughs> lad. So... My lad's got that scooter on the road legally. As I say, I was taking it to the garage for an MOT. It requires a Ministry of Transport test every year. It also requires to have a road fund licence, which has to be paid for. He's required to pay for insurance, which is prohibitively expensive at his age, and he has to wear a crash helmet. Or he could ride one of these e-scooters on the pavement at more or less the same speed. He doesn't need a licence, he doesn't need a helmet, he doesn't need an MOT... I thought pay, those e-scooters were actually illegal. They are, but what are the police going to do about it? What can they do about it? In Manchester, they proliferate. And I'll tell you what, never mind those e-scooters. Are you aware of the Suron? Do you know what a Suron is? No, I've not heard of those. Right, it's an electric motorcycle. Let's not call it a bicycle. It's a motorcycle. I've had a good look at them. They've got telescopic forks, they've got disc brakes. They look like a bicycle, but the power pack is contained in the triangle, in the in the bicycle. So right. it, this isn't something that bobs along at 10, 15 miles an hour. I was on 
a dual carriageway late at night a few days ago. One of them came past me. I reckon he was doing 50, 55. Easily. Easily. So there's now a situation where young people look at the difficulty getting through the licences, paying the road fund, getting an MOT, wearing a crash helmet, and they say sod it. And they buy these. I mean, they aren't cheap. The the, the, the Suron is probably the, the most prominent example of them, but there are other electric motorcycles which young people are just buying and they're not buying them from showrooms motorbike shops or anything like that they're buying them online so they're kind of untraceable and what 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 would people like the police to do that's what i say when people moan and say well they need to do something about that i say okay what are we going to do are we going to start chasing young people who aren't wearing any protective equipment at all they're not wearing a helmet they're not wearing gloves they're not wearing boots not wearing anything so the police are going to start chasing them. Then when these kids start dying, because that will happen, then there'll be a backlash. The police, in a sense, don't know what to do, I don't think, because if they actually start doing I, I stuff... I think you're right, because I've yeah. seen this before, where the cops chase somebody, whoever they're chasing then kills himself or kills somebody else, and there's a big inquiry into the behaviour of the police. Now, there's a lot of things that I could... Um, disagree with the police about certainly I could, I, I could do an entire interview just on the police but I do sympathise with the yeah. position in which they find themselves yeah because what again people mourn but I would ask the, I would ask them that question what do you want the police to do do you want the penalty for illegally riding one of those motor power, electric motorcycles do you want the penalty to be death because at those speeds it will be death if they start chasing them, because they're on kind of skinny bicycle-type tyres, and they're the, the, the carrying... Those things have got so much torque, they're carrying so much speed. Legislation has completely failed to foresee this coming. It was you always see, coming. You see, kids in, in countries like France have had these electrically-assisted or, in, in some cases, internal combustion engine-assisted bicycles for years. The Vela Selects and the Moto Bicano, whatever. That, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. But, of course, France um, is, to a large extent, still a rural country. Yeah, yeah there are big cities, obviously, but there are great expanses um, where not a lot of people live and the population densities and the traffic densities are very low. And kids can blast around on these things and, and usually get away with it without doing themselves any great harm. But we are a very densely populated country with very high traffic volumes per mile of road and I, I can just see there is going to be carnage when you let people loose on these things this is, this is why I was opposing the motorcycle industry 20 30 years ago when they wanted to bring in these French type mm. bikes mm. and let 15 year olds loose on them I thought it was absolutely mad it would only do us a lot of harm in the, in the long run we've just had the biggest motorbike shop in Manchester close um, and it was a new Yamaha dealership. It only opened a couple of years ago. People might blame COVID, whatever. The specialists have survived. Who would have, who would have said that 25, 30 years ago? If you just said at the height of the sport bike boom in the UK when Performance Bikes magazine was one of the best-selling, not just motorbike magazines, but magazines. It, it used to appear in, like, the top 40 magazines along with sort of Take a Break and the Radio Times and stuff yep. like that. Who would have predicted then when, you know, they were encouraging to, encouraging you to grind your knee sliders to atoms and there was somebody pulling a wheelie every single month on the front cover <laughs> and they were selling 150,000 copies? Who would have predicted that 
the Yamaha dealership, a big shiny new dealership, will close. But Harley, Ducati, Triumph, BMW are still there. Who would have predicted that? Yeah, I mean, th- th- there will always be um, a market for quality, but the problem is the people who can afford it are a diminishing group of people, and uh, they are an aging group of people. And uh, unless we can turn that around, then the, the future of motorcycling is limited. I, turning I, it around, I'm not absolutely. That con- I'm not that concerned because I won't be here. I think, I think, in a way. We're a bit like people mourning about the demise of the music hall, going, oh, these talking pictures are terrible. It's killing the music hall. You're like, well, you can't stop progress. And again, yeah, I say the, to the, you... The music hall was something you watch. Motorcycling is something you do. And I, and I do believe that motorcycling um, is a great thing, that it's character-forming. It I don't think that I would have been as successful in my life. Yeah. Had I not been a motorcyclist, because, you know, I was riding bikes in the 80s when they still weren't all that reliable. I mean, the first time I went to the south of France, I went to, I went down to Cannes, and I camped at Mondelier, and I stayed off the motorway, so I used the N roads and the D roads all the way. That was when I was 21. And I did that on a Honda FT500 single, um, which, had, you know, a lot of mechanical and electrical problems, which I had to solve along the way. A Honda? Myself. Surely yeah, Honda not. 500, FT500. If, if you remember the FT, the FT had loads of problems. It had starter motor problems. <laughs> Um, the bloody electrics completely stopped charging by the time I got to Cannes. Uh, I had to bump start it the entire way back. Could not find the problem. Finally found it when I got back home. It was one wire off the regulator rectifier, which had gone all green and manky and corroded. Uh, and that was enough to stop the whole thing charging. I fixed it with one of my mother's air clips, which I sold <laughs> to the wire and poked back into the hole. It had come out of... I was about that for... Uh, <laughs> Improvisation. I tell you what, I was um, I was emceeing a, a music festival um, the other day. It's Bank Holiday Monday, and it's a big established music festival. And there was a young band playing on there, and they were very much in the vein of kind of Van Halen or or sort of um, you know an eighties rock band, not too yeah. heavy, maybe a little bit sort of Bon Jovi inspired. The lead singer was fantastic. What a voice on him! And I was talking to, uh, I introduced them, and I was talking to a guy at the at the side of the at the side of the stage, the sound guy, and I said, "These are great." And he said, "Yeah, they've got about as much chance of making it." And I said, "Yeah, no, we're in the post rock era." Charlie, yeah, what's... people like this, these are not necessarily going to be massive stars, but they will probably always be able to get themselves a living. I mean, I we've had some fantastic I don't know. performers. I don't know, and that's what what I'm saying is, should we be that concerned? I mean, we love motorcycle. It's it's been our life. It's been my, you know, it's been a huge part of, of both our lives. But should we be trying to force, in a way, young people? We can't force them. If they don't we, like we, it, you, they don't you, like you it. You can't force anybody to ride a bike. But my, you say, well, you know, what do we care? I'm 58. Um, I'm not planning to give up motorcycling anytime soon. If we allow the government to get away with this 2030 nonsense of uh, banning new internal combustion engine vehicles, that will not be the end of it. What they will then do is progressively through taxation and other measures, they will force existing bikes and cars off the road. So whereas people are saying to me now, well, I've got you know, four bikes in the garage and they'll keep them going for the next 30 years and that will see me out. No, it won't, because they will stop you riding them by one way or one means or another. Well, and you should not be deceived and you should yeah. not be fooled. And, you know, the other candidate in this chairmanship election for MAG, 
his entire platform was built on asking for an exemption for bikes, which be between him penning that manifesto and the election which not yet happened, the government said, well, that's not going to happen because we're not giving exemptions to bikes. So his entire platform fell apart even before the elections run, through naivety. Neil, I love your passion. It's great. I'm not sure I agree with you, but that's not a problem. But here's the thing. Like you, we're more or less the same age. I bought a bike last week, another bike. I have zero plans. I'm, you're going to have to prize my cold, dead fingers off the handlebars, mate. Well, of course, what, what was the name? Rebecca Long Bailey? Rebecca Wrong Daily? <laughs> was, was talking about forci forcibly taking people's cars and bikes off them to meet this net zero target. All I can say is, Miss Wrong Daily, fine, but I hope you can get an armoured division with air support down well, our street, because well, that's what you're going to need. Here's the thing. My pals in the States, in North America, we, I've had a similar conversation with them, and there's one guy who didn't say anything, and he said, let them come to my house and try and take my motorcycles. And I thought, I know that guy. Yep. He's got an arsenal. He's not, he's not, <laughs> he's not at all an aggressive or violent man in any way, shape, or form. He's an educated man. He's a businessman. He's a hard-working guy. If you went to his property and tried to forcibly take his motorcycles, then I really don't know. Why. But we haven't got that option in Britain. What are we supposed to do? Come out with a cricket bat and wave it at them? Well, you, you know what? <laughs> There's a bunch of people who keep the country running. And there are other people who are employed by them. And we're very glad to have the jobs. And, you know, the people like me that employ people, and we're very glad to employ people. And between the lot of us, we make this country viable. And at the top of it, you've got a bunch of people, most of whom have never had proper jobs. Politicians. Yep. They go from, Professional they go from politicians. a school to a yep. Ponce University. They get a job as a researcher or a, a spad or whatever. And sooner or later, they get grafted into a safe seat and they never see real work. And they spend the rest of their lives telling the rest of us what to do. And it's about time instead of telling, they started listening. Because they are all replaceable. That's it for another episode of Steve Berry's award-seeking show, Steve Speech Up. <laughs> Tell your friends about it, because social media won't let us promote it. They just want money, and we haven't got any money. So tell your friends how good it is, and send them to Fab Radio International. 